Welcome. Hi, I'm Mickey, and this is Wikipedia, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners, and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness, and well-being. And I'm delighted that you're here. Kia ora everyone, it's Mickey here and you are listening to Wikipedia. This week on the podcast I speak to my friend Dr. Greg Brown, Medical Director at Wellington Hyperbarics, all about hyperbaric oxygen therapy or HBOT. We discuss the history of HBOT as a therapy for a range of hard to treat conditions and why there are, are so few clinics available here in New Zealand and Australia as well, despite robust research on its effectiveness internationally, particularly actually in wound healing. Dr. Brown details out the mechanisms behind how HBOT works, the frequency and duration of sessions that they use at Wellington Hyperbarics, and how it is used for conditions such as traumatic brain injury, chronic fatigue, and long COVID. Greg is obviously passionate about this area and he's always been really interested in nutritional and environmental medicine and it was great to be able to have a conversation with him about his current role as the medical director of this and he is a wealth of information so I really think you're going to get a lot from this podcast and for those of you unfamiliar with Greg Dr. Greg Brown is an experienced medical practitioner with a background in general practice, military medicine, travel medicine and nutritional and environmental medicine. Greg retired from the Royal New Zealand Navy in early 2020 with the rank of Surgeon Lieutenant Commander, having spent a number of years as the Principal Medical Advisor for the Operational Headquarters of the New Zealand Defence Force. Greg has led the medical support on overseas trips with two New Zealand Prime Ministers and has deployed to the Indian Ocean on counter-narcotic operations. He has a broad base of knowledge with experience in medical systems, design and clinical governance. And in fact, both Greg and I were two of the founding members of the Ancestral Health Society of New Zealand and we met back in 2014. Today, Greg's role is to oversee all clinical aspects of the Wellington Hyperbarics Unit, ensuring that patients are screened for suitability of the therapy and that an individualised treatment programme is constructed for each person. So I've put a link as to where you can find Dr. Greg Brown and the Wellington Hyperbarics team. So if you are interested in this type of therapy or just want to know more you can absolutely touch base with him there and um, he's pretty solid about giving back to you. Before we crack on into the interview I would just like to remind you the best way to support the podcast is to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a five-star review because this helps increase the awareness to Wikipedia and the information and knowledge that I'm privileged to talk to my guests about. That would be amazing. So thank you so much for that. For now, though, please enjoy this interview that I had with Dr. Greg Brown. Dr. Greg Brown, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me this morning. Obviously, we have, well, we've known each other for a number of years, although not quite, um, haven't over recent years 
been able to come together and sort of share the same space and ideas, which is the unfortunate reality of COVID and life and et cetera. And today, of course, we're talking about your work in hyperbaric oxygen treatment. Uh, but of course, you've got quite an extensive background in um, medicine and in other areas. So can you just sort of introduce yourself and, and tell people um, who you are, what you do? Let's start there. Sure thing, Michiel. It's lovely to talk to you again. As you say, we've known each other for probably, it must be around about 10 years, I would guess, somewhere around then. Um, and uh, yeah, I guess that means that we're both getting old, right? But uh, I've, I've, <laughs> been, um, I've been a doctor for, um, for 16 years. I qualified from the University of Sheffield in the UK um, in 2005. Um, and I then uh, trained as a, as a GP in the UK um, before coming to, uh, to New Zealand in 2011. Um, and at that point, my uh, my career sort of took a took a, a left turn um, into, I guess, slightly less conventional territory. And I joined the um, well, for a start, I joined the New Zealand Defence Force as a uh, initially as a civilian medical officer, and then later spent some time in uniform in the Royal New Zealand Navy. So I got to do some uh, some pretty fun stuff with that, deploying to sea, counter narcotics in the Middle East, and um, accompanying a couple of New Zealand prime ministers on a couple of trips and various other. things things um, and around about that time also uh, really um, took a deep dive into the nutrition and wellness space which is how of course you and I originally connected. Yeah and Greg I'm interested actually because of course you have as, you, as you've just said spent time in Defence Force and, and in uniform were you able to sort of share what you, you knew about nutrition and wellness in those in that capacity in your work there or, or did you have to keep it quite conventional? No, I I was able to do uh, to do some stuff there. I made myself marginally unpopular in the early days. You know, back if if, if we if we step back to you know maybe 2012, 2013. Um, Low carbohydrate nutrition was uh, was relatively controversial, wasn't it? You know, and uh, yeah. and I remember sitting there with a you know uh, the results of a of a patient whose HbA one C had gone down and their lipid profile had improved and they'd lost a bunch of weight. And I had a colleague telling me, "You're you're, you're doing dangerous things. This guy's going to have a heart attack." And I respectfully differed. Um, and then, of course, you and I were able to make a little bit of progress um, with that uh, that study that, that that your unit at AUT did within the Navy, um, which I think was around about 2014, um, which did result in some changes to the nutritional policies of NZDF. But certainly at, at an individual patient level, yeah, um, treated a bunch of people, used used the whole 30 quite a lot. And yes. um, because I had the luxury of long appointments and the ability to see people again and again and as do, do as many blood tests as I, as I liked, I was able to really track what I was doing with those patients quite closely um, and was able to convince myself, as I say, back in the day when it was rel rel relatively controversial, that, um, that everything was going to improve, it wasn't going to deteriorate, you know, saturated fat wasn't going to kill people. Um, so that, that, was, that was really good. And I think the other aspect of that is that if you um, if you give a military person a plan 
and say, hey, look, if you uh, if you do this, then you know X Y Z is likely to happen, and hey, I could make you deployable again, and they could send you back to you know a- Afghanistan. How about that? They go, oh, that's great, Doc. Thanks, you know, because they seem to you know because they loved all that. Um, so that that was that was quite successful, um, including amongst some some very um, senior officers up to service chief um, level, um, and I think partly because of that, that's how we ended up getting the. Um, the policies changed to a degree, um, and then on deployment, um, it was always quite good to do talks uh, to you know captive audience of ship's company. You've got nothing better to do than sit and listen to me, you know. <laughs> but of course, you've moved out of that work now, and today we're talking about hyperbaric oxygen therapy, which. Prior to um, us sort of jumping on and hitting record, I was saying to you that the only sort of knowledge in this space that I have is it's so scant. I've been familiar with the concept of it just through a very good friend of mine, Katie Boyd, specialises in cancer nutrition and often comes up in some of her treatment plans. And then I heard from our other good friend, Dr. Karen Fanzia, that you are actually running a, a clinic in Wellington. So I thought, oh, I have to speak to Greg about his work. So this, Greg, will be a very 101 conversation with you Uh, So because I know nothing. And I would probably, um, you know, I'd put money on the fact that a lot of people listening to this podcast will probably be in a similar situation. So before we sort of get into the nuts and bolts, how did you sort of come to this place where you are now working um, closely with this hyperbaric oxygen therapy? Yeah, life takes some interesting uh, twists and turns, doesn't it? And uh, I guess from a from a one hundred and one perspective, that suits me perfectly because I'm a I'm a GP. I'm a I'm a specialist generalist. You know, I'm not a I'm not an academic. Um, I've, I don't have a research paper to my name. Um, so for me, it's all about operationalizing hyperbarics and rolling it out to as many people as possible. So, um, I, I guess. I would say this was you know right place at the right time. Um, so I was I was in pro, I was approached by a um, by a businessman that I know um, locally here in the Wellington region um, who um, was after a bit of a, a bit of a legacy project and he'd he'd been introduced to this idea by some some contacts of his who were you know seeking to raise some venture capital to uh, to get hyperbarics into New Zealand and he, he thought well um, actually why don't I just use my own money and um, and, and and do this um, and he asked me to look into it and uh, and if I was interested to come on board as his medical director and I think you know much much like probably most doctors in certainly in this country um, and probably elsewhere my knowledge of hyperbaric medicine was was really limited to um, exposure adjacent to that uh, with dive uh, medicine you know and, and dive yes. injuries and uh, and I think that's probably what most people associate hyperbarics with um, divers come up with the bends they need to be repressurized to sometimes quite considerable pressures um, and then decompressed slowly um, to to do that and you know, to basically state it in, in a nutshell um, it turns out that hyperbarics is, is much um, much broader in application uh, than that um, and um, it's probably the most exciting thing I've I've come across uh, in, in in my career uh, to date so in in terms of, of what it is um, 
essentially, I mean, hyperbarics is, is a dual drug therapy. Okay. If you want to conceptualize it like that, you've got two elements, you've got pressure and you've got oxygen. And the way that, that it is generally delivered in a, in a medical setting um, is in a, a hard shell chamber that's capable of, of achieving pressures of um, absolute minimum of 1.5 atmospheres, so 1.5 times atmospheric pressure. Um, but most of the magic happens around about two or thereabouts. So that would be the equivalent to like a 10 meter dive in terms okay. of the pressure that's exerted on the body. Okay. Um, and then um, high flow oxygen is delivered while in a hard shell chamber. Um, and there are you know, different protocols around how that's done. And we could potentially get into some of that because it's relevant to, to what hyperbarics actually does. Um, and um, people are um, given oxygen under pressure for usually around about an hour and a half. And that's repeated on a, on a daily basis, um, usually weekdays, more for the convenience of the clinician than the patient. Um, but it's repeated weekdays for um, often for several weeks. Okay. And how big is the chamber, Gregor? Is it something like the size of an MRI machine or is it like a small room? Like what does that look like? Yeah, so for us, small room would probably be the be the best analogy. Um, there, are, there are lots of different sorts. There are um, there are single place, mono place chambers, which you generally lie in, um, and then there are multi place with seats, um, and they can be in some of the international centres. They can be huge, um, you know, lots and lots of people with an attendant in the chamber. We have two in operation um, at our facility just north of Wellington. Um, one has got five seats. The other has two and um, there's plenty of space to kind of move around uh, within that chamber. Um, took my took my family in once and my son decided that uh, he quite fancied doing a few push-ups in the chamber to see if it could improve his rep range. And uh, so there was room enough for a, a lanky 16-year-old to drop down and, uh, and pump out a few push-ups. Oh, nice. <laughs> so, Greg, with regards to the your original sort of um, the proposition that was presented to you, what was it about that HBOT uh, that interested your business partner or the investor? So what was it about it that he was like, oh, this actually sounds like something I want to get behind? Mm. Uh, it, it actually works. Um, it's a it's an effective modality for a bunch of conditions that that conventional medicine really struggles uh, to manage well. Um, so we're talking about things like uh, dementia and cognitive decline, and we're talking about improving uh, stroke outcomes. Uh, talking about uh, improving um, symptoms of uh, traumatic brain injury. Um, so there's a there's a bunch of things that I think we don't particularly do well in medicine, um, and um, and really this is a a missing modality from the landscape here. And I mean, if you if you look at any any large hospital that you've heard of in the United States, they will have a hyperbaric medicine unit. Okay, um, and 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 the model has has historically been hospital based. You know, large chambers doing high pressures. Um, and and then on the other end of the scale, there's people with canvas bags that do what's referred to as mild HBOT, where they might get to you know 1.2, 1.3 atmospheres. That sort of Goldilocks zone in the middle, where you where you 
you're trading people to 1.5 to 2 um, is something that that our proposition and I guess the trail that we're that we're trying to blaze here um, is can be done at scale in the community by generalist physicians like myself. You know, you don't need to be um, a hospital grade thing costing eight million dollars doing four atmospheres you, you you can do it safely in that 1.5 to 2 range um, and benefit lots and lots of people so that really was the driver something that's essentially you know non-pharmaceutical right and you know and that's and that's probably why it's not really got anywhere because no because none of in terms of the model of how medicine traditionally has has worked and, and seems to be getting worse in that regard um nobody really benefits apart from the patients. Yeah, it's so interesting because as I was just doing a bit of background research for our discussion, um, I did come across like several clinical trials looking at HBOT, which you've just called it, but just so much better than HBOT. I mean, hello. Um, and, um, and it appears that, um, as you said, like in Europe and over here in the States, there is, you know, it's, um, it's not standard therapy, but it absolutely is an option. And someone I was um, listening to is currently doing his PhD, looking at the different pressures that are used in the chambers and which ones might have a more beneficial outcome, um, depending on um, the dose and frequency and, and things like that as well. Um, and I do want to ask you about that. But first, can I ask Greg, what is the mechanism? You know, what is happening that is helping improve a number of these health outcomes that we're seeing in the literature and, of course, you're seeing in the clinic and, as you mentioned, with um, deep-sea diving and stuff like that? Yeah, so there, there's, there is the, the basic upfront mechanism of increased oxygenation. So um, by giving oxygen under pressure, um, you're invoking um, you're invoking one of the gas laws, and you're invoking Henry's law. So you're effectively um, dissolving much more oxygen in this case into, into blood plasma, right? So in addition to um, getting your uh, your hemoglobin to, um, to to saturation point, you're also dissolving oxygen into the plasma. So if um, if somebody is suffering from a wound, um, for example, due to poor circulation, and, and, and fundament fundamentally, you know, hyperbarics heals wounds, right? Whether on the inside or the outside, but if, if we're looking at a visible wound, um, you're going to be able to get uh, oxygen to that area and improve wound healing um, in the in the short term just because of that one basic mechanism. But it, it actually goes much deeper than that um, because there are there are three other main things that are happening. Okay, so um, the way that that hyperbarics has evolved, and and a lot of this is driven by a, a large um, research group in Tel Aviv, Israel, um, led by a chap called Professor Shai Efrati. Um, what they what they have figured out is that um, if you cycle people on and off the oxygen, which which we do every twenty minutes, so twenty minutes on, five minutes off. Um, you actually trick the body into thinking that it's in a state of, of hypoxia, which it is in a relative sense, right? You've, you've, you've been given, in our case, 20 litres of oxygen for, for 20 minutes through a, you know, through a mask with a reservoir bag on, and then you, you get to take the mask off and breathe the, the, the chamber air, which is usually at that point sitting at around 22 23%, so it's not quite room air just because there's oxygen blowing around. But um, that then causes um, the release of, of, of the most potent mechanisms that the body has for healing itself. Um, and, and there are some technical mechanisms around that. There's something called hypoxia-induced factor, and then there's a cascade of things um, that happen as a result of that. Um, 
and much of which is you know beyond my scope as a simple GP, but I understand it enough to uh, to, to 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 be doing this. Um, the first thing that happens with that is you get um, vascular endothelial growth factor released VEGF, which um, you know is is reasonably well known in the, in the medical community. It's a target of drugs um, for various reasons, but what VEGF does is it it causes angiogenesis growth of new blood vessels so let's yes. take the wound as a um, you know as, as as a continued example if you've got arterial insufficiency and that's why you've got an ulcer um you know, you're, you're going to get some oxygen through straight away because we're dissolving it in the plasma but also at that site you're you're going to get the stimulation of um, of new vessel growth to uh, to bypass that blockage you know and and that and that then becomes a permanent change right the vessels are there and they stay there um so that occurs for a wound but it also occurs places like the brain with obvious implications for any condition that uh, that has disordered blood flow uh, as a uh, as a mechanism or or a consequence so that's that's point 1 angiogenesis the second thing that it does over time and it takes you know, it takes 20 or 30 sessions before this this starts to kick in and then it it increases up to sort of 60 and 60 sessions and beyond uh, is the release of um, of larger quantities of circulating stem cells so that yeah that's ve that's very well established now that after you know after sort of 30 sessions or thereabouts you've got eight times the number of, of stem cells without the need to harvest and you know, re reintroduce your stem cells. Your body is just generating that in response to the hypoxia. So, and how many two. sessions would you say that would happen? That's that usually starts to happen around sort of twenty to thirty. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So the studies that have been done. I mean, there's a, there, there, there was a, there was a good um, there was a good study actually that was um, that was done that showed um, that it it was essentially by about session thirty. Um, you were you were generating you know large quantities and then that effect sort of then increased through to about 60 and then persisted beyond that so that's the kind of range so really time consuming to get to that point but um but that's the, that's the result that it has um the third the third mechanism gets gets quite interesting um because we, we we're then into the epigenetic realm okay so I'm, I'm sure your audience will be well familiar with epigenetics but uh, but obviously the you know, the concept that's sitting above the, the the raw genetic code you can turn on and off genes um with various purposes now the the, the great thing about hyperbarics is is that it um, it does so with the effect of reducing inflammation so uh, the oxygen and the pressure actually seem to do two different things in this regard one um, decreases pro-inflammatory uh, gene expression the other increases anti-inflammatory gene expression so you've got this kind of double-headed thing going on um, how many conditions of modernity involve inflammation right so the breadth of that is then is then huge yeah yeah so Greg that I, those um, the, one of the first things actually that I want to ask you about is that relative hypo environment. So you mentioned that at the start, that because we you're given so much oxygen, that to take it away and get back to what would be considered normal. And what is what is the normal oxygen saturation? I mean, should I feel like I should know this? I feel a bit yeah, dumb. So, I mean, so, even so rumor is twenty one percent. Okay, twenty one percent. And so yeah. to go from that, is it close to one hundred percent to? Um, it's it's it it. it 
we we, we, def we definitely don't claim that. Um, I think the uh, yeah to do to do 100% oxygen, you, you you pretty much need to ventilate somebody. But uh, the, the masks that we use, we're, we're certainly getting getting into 80 odd percent, um, potentially as much as, as 90. But it but it depends on a whole bunch of things: how fast somebody's breathing, um, how how well the mask fits, and uh, you know we, we we know we know from other environments that masks are not all they're uh, all, all they're touted to be. So um, you, you you've got a great um, sort of variety of how much people are actually inspiring, but the, but the main thing is you know you've got you've got twenty you've got twenty liters of oxygen. Uh, it's way way higher than normal, and then you're cutting down from sort of at least eighty odd percent down to down back down to twenty odd. Yeah, crazy. And so you're getting these changes in the angiogenesis. So you're getting increased um, blood capillaries and so increased blood flow to areas that would otherwise not have it. Does this mean that sort of conditions like um, neuropathy that people get in type 2 diabetes where it ends up with that they have like amputations and things like that that something like HBOC could be a therapeutic uh, measure if anyone was at that stage or beginning that stage is that like is there research around that or does the mechanism support something like that yeah I mean there there is there is some research around that there's the on that score um it's a little bit weaker, I guess, than some of the research elsewhere. So, I mean, there, there was a there, there was a Cochrane review that was done in in 2015 that um, I think it was I think it was 2015 that that said essentially that um, with with diabetic foot ulcers, particularly, which which then will lead to amputations potentially, that um, that that it did significantly improve the ulcers healed in in the short term, but that the long term was was kind of unestablished and and you know the usual thing that you get in any paper which says more research is needed, you know. Um, so uh, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, people with with neuropathies and with with chronic pain syndromes and 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 things like that um, tend to improve quite quickly. We've had we've had some some patients that have done well in that regard. Um, diabetic ulcers and prevention of amputations, and also actually things like you know chronic osteomyelitis that that often goes along with it. Um, that is a well-established indication elsewhere in the world, and you know, in, in in a very real sense, people in New Zealand are are losing digits and limbs for lack of hyperbaric oxygen therapy. I believe. Yeah, yeah, so interesting. And then, of course, you mentioned the changes in the epigenetic changes, and that's something which I'm familiar with in terms of sort of nutritional inputs that can help with that occurring and I think it's really exciting to imagine that something like HBOT could have a similar um, effect on our anti-inflammatory genes and our antioxidant genes and mm. and things like that. Yeah it's pretty wild isn't it I mean you know the the breadth of, of conditions that that, uh, that that could be helpful for is um, is, is considerable um, because that is an awful lot of the diseases of modernity. So whether you're talking about neuroinflammation or, or, or anything else, you know, you've got um, uh, you've, you've got a lot of conditions that that um, that that would be relevant to. You know, whether it's um, you know musculoskeletal or, or neurological, cardiological. I mean, we've we, we've done we've done some of some of all of that. Yeah, Greg. So. Now that we've sort of done a little bit of um, 101 and what the mechanism is, I mean, you mentioned frequency of dose, like how often it might take someone needs to be in there in order to see some of these benefits. So is there, are there particular protocols that you already have in place based on, of course, your understanding of the literature and stuff as to what someone might expect with any particular health condition? So, yeah, do we have 
doses and frequencies already sort of set out where we know that there are some really um, sort of significant clinical outcomes. Mm. Yeah, we do. And I think we, we've got the we've got a bit of a tension, I guess, between um, the ideal and what the research is based on and, and, and what people can afford in terms of uh, in terms of time and money. Right. So most of the research is based on blocks of 40 sessions. Um, so that's, you know, um, eight weeks worth of, of coming every every weekday. Yeah. Uh, depending on for the condition, long? it could be more, it could be less. For, for how long? Um, so coming for uh, essentially need to need to set aside two hours a day um, because the, okay. the the session lasts for about an hour and 40 by the time you've done the compression decompression um, cycle at beginning and end. And is it important to have those sort of weekday sessions one after the other? Is that the what does is it this cumulative effect? If you did it and then went away on holiday for two weeks, would you essentially be uh, would you have like lost some of those gains or how does that work? Um I think there there does seem to be a cumulative aspect for sure. Um you know, and if somebody was to do, you know, one week and then uh, and then go off for two weeks, I think, you know, uh, likely as not some of the longer term mechanisms that we were talking about around things like angiogenesis and stem cell release, um, they, that would probably be resetting the clock back to square one. But um, our experience has been that, you know, once people have a few weeks under their belt, it's actually not a problem to go away for a week. And sometimes, actually, depending on, on the scenario, that can be helpful for them because, um you know, if you're if you're travelling up from uh, you know from central Wellington um, and uh, you're doing that every day um, for weeks on end, you know the there's a, there's a chronic stress element to that that might not be particularly helpful depending on the condition that you're dealing with. So you know we we have certainly had one or two patients that have gone off for a break for a week and a holiday and come back and actually then then done even better um, subsequent to that. So yeah. we don't like coming people coming for less than. Um, less than four days a week we think that that's that's probably starting to get into the uh, into the realm of uh, of resetting each time but uh, yeah if people are able to do that for a few weeks you know with the flexibility of living in the real world um then yeah. it's then fine to take breaks yeah and it's interesting because of course you mentioned that angiogenesis and that once your body uh, sort of produces these you know, new blood capillaries, they're there now. So that increased blood flow is just a part of it. That's obviously, that isn't dependent on once they're there, how often you go. So is there a sort of a, like a, do you expect six months, three months, uh, 12 months? I suppose it, it changes, but in things like, for example, concussion or traumatic brain injury, do we have an idea of how long a treatment like this might need to be undertaken for? Um, yeah, things like traumatic brain injury, um, you, you're really looking at 40 to 60 sessions um, to, to get results. And, it, and it, depends, it depends on the severity. It depends on how long ago the injury was sustained. You know, our, our, our belief is, I can't really back this up, but our belief is that if we can get people fairly soon after the injury, we're going to end up needing to give fewer sessions. We are just today, you know, completing um, a, a course of 60 with somebody who, um, whose brain injury was, was 10 years um, prior to coming to us. Um, but um, but that hasn't stopped this person doing incredibly well and um, and improving absolute leaps and bounds. So yeah, bit bit of a variability. I think you know with, with things like TBIs, our hope is that you know once 
once they've completed the course of treatment and got to where they want to be, they they probably don't need us anymore, you know. And that's uh, that is the absolute ideal, right? I mean, you know, as a it's, it's a terrible business model, but it's great for patients. Um, and uh, for some of the other indications, things like cognitive decline, there's there's probably the sense of of maybe needing to be topped up every so often. But um, we we don't have a clear idea yet on exactly how often that that would be um, and we're using some some of the, the sort of technologies and trying to use wearables and um, uh, uh, app-based sort of gamified testing regimes just to just to try and um, enable our patients to track themselves in, you know when, when they're not coming to us so that they could maybe see early that something was declining again and to come back for more treatment. Yeah, and it's interesting, Greg, because a lot of the conditions that you mentioned, obviously, are ones which I thought about in terms of the ketogenic diet, uh, following, you know, we talked about the whole 30, like making dietary change to help improve sort of outcomes. Uh, given your experience and background in that realm, are there other recommendations that you make to sort of work alongside HBOT? Uh, and if there are, how well received are they by the patient? Um, it, it's it's very much been on on an individual patient basis. To be honest, um, we've we, we've not we, we're not trying at this stage to be too kind of multimodal. You know, I think we've we, we've got enough of a battle on our hands. Um, you know, trying to to get HBOT accepted um, and uh, try and deal with some of the you know the, the, the skepticism amongst medical colleagues and that sort of thing. But yes, I mean, our, our individual patients absolutely. You know, we can uh, we can we can sort of stray into that uh, into that arena quite happily. I don't um, I don't do um, blood tests and things like that um, in in the hyperbaric clinic. Sort of decided not to not to go down that avenue. Um, but as, as Providing advice, yep, around lower carbohydrate and sometimes ketogenic diets, yep, that's definitely something that, that we do. Um, as you will be well aware, you know how well that's received and how well that's implemented is uh, is is incredibly variable. But uh, but we we try. Yeah, totally. And you know what? And it's so individual, isn't it? Like for some people, it's almost that of course they're going to follow your advice because you know HBOT wouldn't be something that anyone comes. To, that it's not an easy, or it's not a, it's not something you can sort of do on a whim. Just given, as you've said about the uh, the availability of the resource, the time, the money, the potential stress of it, um, you would imagine that for some people, of course, they're going to do all the, uh, these other things to really make the most of something like HBOT. I think that would be really interesting research, actually, looking at the, co the that sort of adjunct therapy. Um, Greg, do we know um, of like I mentioned um, Katie, and I mentioned uh, that you know she uh, has talked about it in light of cancer. What do we know in that realm? It's um, yeah, that there's some controversies around that. Um, we know very clearly that it's incredibly good as an adjunctive therapy, particularly if somebody's needing um, radiotherapy. Um, and, um, you know, anybody who's, who's ever, as I have looked after, you know, patients having, uh, having radiotherapy, particularly things like, things like head and neck radiotherapy. I mean, you know, mucositis is, is absolute hell on earth. It's a complete nightmare having pre-treatment with hyperbarics and then post-treatment really just minimizes that tissue damage, you know, from, for obvious reasons. Right. Um, 
so that's really good. And and I guess the you know, the question the question often comes up about the angiogenesis aspects of it, you know, because yes, obviously of one of the things that tumors do really well is is to generate their own angiogenesis. And indeed some, you know, cancer drugs are inhibitors of, of VEGF. So um, you know, does does hyperbarics have the potential to worsen cancer? Um like like mechanistically you'd think that it might. In, in practice there's actually no evidence that it does. So we we certainly, you know, see it as a as an adjunctive thing um that's good for um you know pre and post op you know somebody's going to have a, a major operation um good good to uh, enhance your wound healing as as much as possible um and certainly around um, radiotherapy there are some contraindications around some um, sorts of, of chemotherapy you know that's and it's my job to, to obviously screen to screen for that and uh, and, and, and make sure that we don't uh, we don't treat somebody who shouldn't be treated but yeah definitely a role um and again, more research required. More research required, yeah. And what about in a sort of just overall mental health, depression, mm -hmm. anxiety? Is there a role for HBOT in something like that? Someone who has, you know, who is non-responsive to other therapies? Yep, there are, there are some case reports in the literature of that, uh, yep. And particularly where you get you get traumatic brain injury and mental health um, coexisting, yeah. um, and um, particularly PTSD. Uh, so you know, military personnel would be you know to go back to my my roots would be a you know classic example of that. Um, there's a there's a really excellent movie called Silent Explosions um, that that talks about uh, the use of of hyperbarics and other um, functional medicine modalities in, in people that are that are brain injured, um, whether they be sports people um, or, or military. Um, and the, the mental health uh, aspect of that seems to do very well. Um, there's also there's a case report on Parkinson's um, where um, somebody's mental health issues went, you know, went away with with hyperbarics as well. So, yeah, yeah potential um, for sure. Yeah, yeah, interesting because I was just thinking about there's that question on how SSRIs actually <laughs> might work, you know, yeah. working on the anti-inflammatory basis and so if this 100%. can do a similar thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, it's, interesting. It's, it's fascinating, isn't it? And I think just the, the, the way that finally the biological um, depression and neurotransmitter theory has, has gone out of the window Um and been reported in in reasonably serious news media over the last sort of couple of months. It's it's been very interesting to watch that unravel. I mean, I, I you know I read Irving Kirsch's book, The Emperor's New Drugs, probably about fifteen years ago as a as, as a young doctor, and uh, was quite affected by that. And um, you know, have have tried tried quite hard to uh, to prescribe less and less in that arena. But um, the the inflammatory theory. Now, I mean, uh, I. I I've spoken on that in relation to nutrition, actually. You and I, I think, were at the same conference. I think that was in Wanaka back in the day. Um, the um, things like the the Dunedin, um, you know, childhood longitudinal study, you know, shows um, certain interleukins, certain cytokines that are um, that are elevated in um, in in people who who are then at subsequently high risk of, of depression. Does the reason SSRIs work? Is that because they are anti-inflammatories that cross the blood, the blood-brain barrier? We don't know, but we certainly know that H bodies is potently anti-inflammatory and works on the brain. So, um, yeah, I would love to. I'd love to see more uh, to, to see more patients for pure mental health reasons. We are we, we are seeing some where it's it, it's adjacent to their issues. You know, you've often got a as I say a TBI and depression or and ADHD or whatever. 
Yeah. Greg, now, um, I saw some research looking at, just from that sort of mechanistic perspective, how it helps with mitochondria and helps with ATP production and in 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 that space. And I just thought that I would mention that just because mm. I have spoken to a number of people about mitochondria on the podcast in various sort of um, conversations around supplements and, and protocols and, of course, cold water therapy and, and stuff like mm. that. So is that another, does it help at that real sort of mitochondrial level as well? It's not something I've actually particularly done a done a deep dive into um, personally, um, but uh, yeah, there are there are reasons to suspect that it might. It's probably something I need to look into. I probably need to listen to some of your some more of your back episodes, Mickey. <laughs> well, I'm not going to disagree with that. Um, and actually, okay, so what I would love to just chat briefly about, Greg, is the application in long COVID in COVID recovery, vaccine injury, and all of this space where, you know, this has been on at the forefront of our minds for, you know, two and a half years now. It's sort of slowly getting, you know, we're moving away from it. But I speak to so many people who say that they have long COVID, you know, and, and I've seen varying reports as to whether or not long COVID even exists. But uh, what is the application for this with people with this ongoing fatigue that they feel? And I think that's probably a, a good way to describe it. Yeah, we're uh, we're walking into a minefield here, aren't we? Um, mm -hmm. And you're right. I mean, some of the earlier studies on long COVID you know, seem to indicate that the the primary risk factors for having long COVID was was one a pre existing anxiety disorder and two not actually having had proven COVID in the first place. So, um, really, really interesting. And I, and I think you know, particularly where you've you, you've got a number of viruses that are that are implicated in um, in, in you know, fatigue syndromes that follow the, the primary infection and, and you know, most um, most well known being being glandular fever you know something that i some i somehow managed to get in my late 30s while traveling uh, overseas with the uh, with the navy but that's a, that's that's another story um so certainly a, a number of people um with persisting symptoms you know there are technical definitions around that aren't there around sort of 12 weeks after after clearing the infection and that sort of thing um and it is being it is being looked at. So there's a there's a couple of there's a couple of studies that um, that have been published. One out of the Israeli group and one out of a British group. Um, and small, I mean, small numbers. We're talking, you know, numbers of you know thirty odd in each group. Um, but done quite well in terms of some people. You know, people got sham uh, HBOT rather than um, rather than nothing. You know, rather than placebo or, or whatever. So I think that. Um, that seems to have been conducted quite well, and and, and certainly good clinical outcomes, significant improvements in you know brain MRI perfusion as as we would expect, but but particularly the clinical outcomes around um, neuropsychiatric symptoms, um, fatigue, um, attention, executive function, those sorts of things. Um, so long COVID, whatever it is, um, you know, and and that sort of overlap, I would suggest as well with um, with spikeopathy from the from the vaccine same mechanism spike protein landing up where you don't want it to be um we we possibly haven't seen the half of it yet um we have treated people in that situation so i have yeah. you know i'm gonna put my uh, um put myself on the line here a little bit by saying that I've um, I've treated people that with post-vaccine um, pericarditis um uh, who've who've then done um, extremely well 
Um, and, uh, you know, that would be, I would suggest, around the general um, anti-inflammatory epigenetic stuff that we've that we've talked about as much as anything else. Um, so um, long COVID def definitely looks promising for hyperbarics. And let's let's be frank, what else is there? What else are we offering these these patients? You know, yeah, yeah, um, completely. It's usually time. Hmm. Just wait it out. You'll get better. Take this vitamin C. You know that that like hmm. that's you know there and and of course you see protocols. You see um, massive lists, and I've written massive lists of this supplement might help. This might help. This medication's apparently supposed to be helpful, mm -hmm. but I know that for some it's many months of um of that sort of suboptimal real deep fatigue it seems actually yeah absolutely yeah um you know there, there are obviously some organizations like the fl triple c in america that have actually worked very hard um to to try and get protocols both back in the day for early treatment of covid um, but also now recovery protocols for those with with persistent covid post-COVID symptoms and with vaccine injury. Um, and interestingly, their their latest version of, of their protocol actually brought in um, hyperbarics as a, as, as a modality there. Um, and they, they suggested it was actually more the pressure than the oxygen that, that seemed to, uh, to to do the the business. So along with all of the stuff that we're not allowed to prescribe um, and a bunch of other things, hyperbarics is in there and it's, it's obviously something that we can do. Yeah, interesting. Greg, you mentioned, um, we, we talked about pressure at the start of our conversation, and you mentioned the sweet spot could be 1.5 to 2. Mm. And I do know that there are people with tents, you know, that um, that simulate that HBOT in their houses. But is the pressure high enough to get these kind of benefits, or is it that they'll need to go longer if they're in the tent? Like, like is it so? Do we have good information about that? Um. Well, I'll put it this way. I mean, if if we if we really thought the tents were effective, we we could have got a, a whole heap of those for the the cost of a of a single two seat chamber, right? So, um, where you're dealing with pressures of one point two, one point three, you know, I, I'd, I'd I'd hesitate to say that it that it doesn't do anything at all. Um, but I think that the evidence base is is severely lacking. Um, over a long period of time, would it would it potentially do something? Yeah, I, th I think you know conceivably, and and honestly, you know, if people get better with that, that then more power to them, and and that's yeah, fantastic. Maybe. You know, I, I I really only care about people getting better, um, yeah. not necessarily why or how. So if people are using them and find it effective, it's probably better than nothing. Um, but we we think that really where you look at you look at the numbers, which are not not in my head, so don't ask me. But you know, in terms of the the partial pressures of oxygen that you that you can achieve, um, it's it's pretty it's pretty minimal at one point two compared to just sitting sitting on on oxygen at air at at, um, at sea level you know effectively uh, so is is it doing much I I doubt it's doing very much yeah do you have mm. athletes come in and have sessions to help with performance. Well, I mean, very well established, right? I mean, you know, uh, Novak Djokovic has got has got the same uh, has got the same brand of chambers that we've got. Um, oh, as, yeah. as I understand it, he's got he's got one at home and a couple that he travels with. So he, he travels with a hard shell hyperbaric chamber um, when he goes overseas when he's allowed um, to play. So um, 
we we've seen we've seen as an incidental effect that you know people that have come in for other things have, have come back and gone oh and by the way you know even though my shoulders are a bit a bit niggly I've still um I've been I've been benching more than I than I ever have done over the over the last couple of weeks since I started therapy you say well that's that isn't isn't that interesting that's that that's really yeah good. yeah yeah totally yeah, so you know, if if the if the hurricanes want to come to us, you know, or the All Blacks, that would be, that'd be absolutely fantastic. We're, we're, we're in the area. <gasps> totally. And now, Greg, just to um, finish up on that long COVID slash um, spikeopathy uh, conversation, what like, and you, I don't know whether you have this in your head or even if we know this, but uh, what kind of frequency? How often would someone need to sort of do this in order to see improvements what have you seen in your clinic yeah we've seen really at least 30 sessions um for for long covid yeah it really does take a while um but they seem to get there we, we've got a few on the go at the moment yeah and um, what is the cost of that greek yeah so the um the the cost the cost of hyperbarics we've we've sort of pegged to a um an acc schedule that's for wounds that very that almost never gets gets paid out on but uh, it it comes in at about 300 bucks a session so i mean if you're if you're doing 30 sessions that's kind of like a hernia repair if you you know if if you're doing if you're doing 60 it's more like a new hip you know so it's that sort of thing and and at the moment you know even though it's just on the on the back of a of a really good systematic review that was just published in march in in america by a guy called paul harch um on the back of this systematic review for traumatic brain injury it's now accepted for insurance purposes in the states it is not currently accepted by either acc or um, insurance providers in, in new zealand that really should change um going forward but at the moment um it, it is it is essentially for people who can who can afford to pay for it and that's so that's a bit of a tragedy and what does it take to change at that sort of higher level other than obviously very good peer reviews, but let's face it, we've both been involved in submissions to Ministry of Health and things nutrition related, and they've mm. been just um, I don't know chucked out. Haven't no one's really been interested. So what would it take? Yeah, what would it take? It's a, it's a really good question, isn't it? Um, you know the the, the DHBs haven't inve- haven't invested in this. You know there's um, there's one uh, there's there's a chamber in Devonport, my my old stomping ground next to the naval base there, um, that is that is very underused. There's um, there's there's one in Christchurch that, that that sometimes sees some patients. There's one other GP in um, in 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 Mapua who is um, who is doing similar work. Good good guy called Tim Ewer who will be known um, to many. Oh yes. Um, yeah. The at, at at the kind of national level. Um, there are so many bigger fish to fry at the moment um, that I, I think it's going to be very difficult. Now, I mean, you know, the, the reality is that you know, if we could see enough people, that, that, that there are thirty six thousand TBIs in in New Zealand every year because of our largely our sporting culture and our terrible roads. So. Um, how many of those could we get off ACC weekly comp and back into the workplace? You know, I, I well, on the basis of the experience that we've had, quite a few actually. Um, you know, and 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 I guess that's the that's the long game. Um, we can we can function and survive without them, but it would be really nice if they came to the party eventually. I think what it's going to take in the in the medium term is going to be for one or two of the ACC case managers who've got quite a lot of discretion over what they fund. Um, to agree to pay for a course of, of treatment for selected patients, and yeah. that the results of that will then speak for themselves, um, and, and maybe we can get some traction from the ground up that way. Yeah, yeah, that would be awesome. And so you just mentioned uh, Christchurch, Nelson, 
obviously Wellington and Auckland, are they the major places that you know of or clinics that are offering this kind of treatment? Uh, yeah, I mean the the, the Christchurch and Auckland ones are, are DHB, so um, I've I've only ever known of one patient uh, that I've seen who's who's had um, H blood under the DHB, um, and um, yep. So Tim and Nelson's you know sort of really um, really busy with um, I think lots of uh, lots of autism. Uh, we've we've got a we've got a satellite clinic that's setting up in Nelson as well, so. Um, so we've got a mono place down there, um, hoping for the same in Auckland and and, and well, Palmerston North. Um, we'll have a we'll have a two seat in there fairly soon, and then looking looking at um, Tauranga as well. Awesome! Did you just mm. say autism as well down mm, in Nelson? Yeah. Is that yeah yeah yeah? So, uh, what about things like epilepsy, Greg? Do you think there's application there? I just I don't know. There's so much crossover between what's good for the brain in terms mm. of different conditions. With regards to the ketogenic diet, I wonder whether the same is true of the HBOT treatment. Yeah, I mean, we're dealing, we're dealing essentially with pushing the on switch for the body's own healing and regenerative processes. Um, yeah. and, and that's, you know, beyond... Um, adjusting you know pressures and things like that for, for different patients depending on response the um the mechanism is 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 general it's universal we're not micromanaging the effect of that we're, we're simply saying to the body hey um go off and heal yourself so you know is it yeah hence me saying that it's it's so broad that it's it's very difficult it, you know you, you can't you cannot remotely present this as a panacea for absolutely everything um but uh, as far as um generalizable mechanisms of inducing the body to heal itself um it's it's up there yeah yeah no i think it's super exciting greg and really good to be able to have just even this really basic conversation about the broad uh, mechanisms with which, it, with which it works, the people that you have seen or conditions that you have seen, and and I think at least if anyone out there is listening and they and this resonates with them and something that they're experiencing, um, it's another option for them. Maybe you know that which would be great. Yeah. So, Greg, how can people get in touch with you and your clinic? Okay, so we've got uh, we've got the domain hbot.kiwi. So uh, so jump onto there. Um, there's there's quite a few resources on there. Links to uh, links to research, some downloadable booklets on uh, specific conditions. Uh, one or two talks that I've done in the past. That's on there. There's what there's one there on on aging. That's um, that, uh, that got got quite a lot of views. So uh, so yeah, have a look at hbot.kiwi, and you can contact me through there. That is awesome. Greg, thanks so much for your time this morning. Really appreciate it. Absolute pleasure talking to you again, Mickey. Thanks very much for the invite. All right, team. Hopefully you enjoyed that interview as I did. And look, Greg talked about a few different clinics that are available here in New Zealand. And um, if you do have questions in and around your own sort of um, do-it-yourself hyperbaric tent or whether you know the effectiveness or utility of it I totally would recommend touching base with those guys just to see what input or feedback you might get from it next week on the podcast I'm delighted to bring to you a conversation that I had with Alex Middleton an Australian naturopath and expert in endometriosis and we do a really good deep dive into that 
Until then, you can catch me over on Facebook at Mickey Willardin Nutrition, on Instagram and Twitter at Mickey Willardin, and my website, mickeywillardin.com, where you can choose to sign up for any one of my meal plans or book a one-on-one consultation with me. All right, team, you have a great week, and we'll talk soon. See you later.